Good day, everyone. It's Peter Westerby here with Pete's podcast on community development here in Jinnabara country. And we're just experiencing a big tropical storm in winter, which is probably indicative of climate change. I'm here with Professor Sue Kenny, Emeritus Professor Sue Kenny, uh, for our second conversation on community development and right-wing populism. And I'm really happy. I really enjoyed the first one, Sue. It's good to see you again. And um, I might just remind our listeners that we, our focus for that first conversation was you really beautifully or clearly explaining the six kind of themes of populism and then right-wing populism particularly. So we won't reiterate those, um, but it's that bifurcation, that will of the people, uh, the leaders validating and amplifying the anxieties of the people. It's um, how the populist movement can save the nation. It's, um, you know, they, the populists gaining power through democratic means, but then really cutting off participatory democracy, you know, that we have the mandate. And uh, I think finally we talked about the power of nationalism and patriotism. And we started to differentiate between community development and right-wing populism. And, you know, I really enjoyed your, your kind of clarity. That we, we try to collaborate even if we often fail we don't demonize, even though we might feel like demonizing, <laughs> you know, we don't. And anyway, people can re-listen to that. What I really want to start today with, Sue, is how do community development practitioners respond to right-wing populism? And um, I hope that's a kind of question that gets this going. Yeah, how do community development mm -hmm. practitioners respond yeah all right thanks peter there's there's a lot of debate about the ways in which we we can respond um peter and i have actually been involved in a debate with a couple of colleagues uh, but around the question of dialogue um we would argue that um you know of course you've got to have dialogue with with populace uh they're in your own community they're all over the place um but there are others who say, well, it really, it's a waste of time because there's no way you're going to change them. And you could take an example, for example, of the Trumpites in America. Uh, there's no way you're going to change them by, by talking to them. One other way of dealing with it, and this is the way that I think is really important, um, although it's a much more abstract way at one level, um, and is to actually make sure that we're continually strengthening civil society. Civil society uh, can be thought of in a number of different ways, but, but one way is that it involves um, ensuring that there are spaces, both um, spaces in a theoretical sense, but spaces in a physical sense, where people can actually meet, debate, have free ideas and discuss things. Uh, and much of, just to give you an example, much of um, social media is 
even though there's a general idea that this is civil society, but much, is, much of it is not because it's not a place where you can actually have open discussion, share ideas, where people come together with a view not of necessarily of telling someone else they're wrong, but of actually sharing different ways of understanding issues or looking at the world. And what we So it's kind of like a, a culture, a culture, civil society is yeah. an idea, a culture of listening, debating, not demonising, a set of practices. Yeah. 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 So it's not, not that idea that you try and convince them that they're wrong, um, which is what happens in a lot of social media, but it's a, it's a place where you develop. But it's not just at the level of, of speaking about things and speaking to people. It's, it's, it goes on in these thousands of projects, that you, millions of projects that you have around the world where people set up their own community group in non-government organisations yeah. uh, where people are doing things together, they're associating together. I mean, it's a, the site of social capital, of course, for those people who are interested in the whole social capital um, approach. But it is somewhere where people can come together, they can do things, they can listen to people. It's a place for participatory democracy, of course, not always done perfectly in community organisations. But it's civil society is, is this open um, space. It's a place where you're committed to learning, curiosity, and, and sharing of ideas and practicing association, associationalism, and practicing ways of doing things together. Uh, yeah. And the thing is that when you have a very healthy civil society, then populism, it's very different, difficult for populism to thrive. Yeah. Uh, and what you, what you see with populists is that the moment they then get some power on the populist movement, they begin to close down parts of civil society, whether it's saying don't trust the media um, or don't trust the mainstream media, of course, as Trump said, or uh, whether it's actually closing down non-government organisations and not closing down those spaces for debate, criticism, etc. And yeah. to give, I've been dying to say this, <laughs> but to give an example, um, I want to go to Russia and I want to go to Putin. Is that okay yep. if I do that, Peter? Yeah, let's. Let, it's um, very relevant, and you, it's, you've had lived experience of working in Russia, and I think, you know, it's. I mean, as long as people don't just think of right-wing populism as what's happening in Russia, because you and I, it's happening. Yeah. Like yeah, it's well, almost like this yeah. inevitable global drift at the moment towards right-wing populism, which I kind yeah. of curious. And, like, why is this happening? But Go to Russia. Tell us your story. Right. What I suppose I should say is it's best to think of populism as a playbook, if you like. And not all populists have all those six themes that I've talked about that they take, they, they, they take from that playbook because they, they might need to do, whether it's Erdogan in Turkey, Orban in, in Hungary, Trump, um, you, uh, what's his name, Clyde Palmer in Australia or One Nation. They... They're not, it's not a one-off thing where this, this is all that happens. They pick from this playbook and they use it. It's a yep. political style that they use, the political culture. Yes. So going back, I was working in Russia between 1993 and 2006. I mean, in and out, of course, I wasn't there permanently. And um, I was um, working with a lot of non-government organisations, as I mentioned, 
but I was also um, running workshops on different ways of social, what they call social development, what I would say is community development right throughout Russia. Um, I was also um, a number of conferences there. And they were telling me that there was this bright, young, charismatic person going right back to 1993 called Vladimir Putin that they said, I was told by these people who at that stage you'd say would be cosmopolitan, they spoke English, and even those, when I had a translator, even those that didn't, uh, were talking about this pro-Western, um, open, young person who was coming on. This is the Yeltsin news. And of course, Yeltsin anointed Putin and Putin came to power at the very beginning of the year 2000. Now, what's happened over those years is that he that he's closed. Well, the main the main part of this playbook is to is to say he's, use his democratic credentials. He says he's democratic, um, and he's got in democratically. That is through elections. But he has very systematically closed down civil society. And the organisations that I was visiting, interviewing um, in the late or 1990s and early 2000s, most of them have now been closed down. And when I was there, say 2003 to 2006, I was hearing these horror stories of what the government was doing. And what they did was they would go along to the, uh, a non-government organisation and say, they've got lots of bureaucratic rules, which of course they don't use most of the time, but when they want to use them, they would use it to close down. They'd say, well, your health and safety um, protocols are not correct, so we need to close you down because of that. And the one that's been the most distressing, we've even heard about it in the West, was a group that I was involved in called Memorial. Memorial um, was set up by, um, at the end of the, the collapse of the Soviet Union by people who believed that it was important that the Russians knew who was persecuted by Stalin, what happened to them. And in their, they had an office, in their office, they would have these books and you'd open these pages and there'd be, I think five or three photos. And then they would tell you who the person was, what they'd done wrong and how they died. And I said, oh my goodness, this is awful. And but my Russian friend said, no, 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 people were not scared because they believed that Stalin was right. And so what they, they said, we don't have all that many vis visitors, which surprised me. They said that the logic was if only Stalin had known that my uncle, father, whatever, was in, innocent. And what they were saying is that there's a different way of thinking about all these things in Russia. But we, what they said, of course, this is the Chechen Wars too, but we are now documenting all the persecutions that are going on. Uh, and we believe that for posterity, we need to have all these examples of, 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 of Russia, the Russian state persecuting Russians. Uh, and of course, last year, uh, Memorial was shut down completely. Um, and um, so that's another, that's, that's another organization. Human rights ones were of course were closed down. Uh, even little community organizations dealing with um, you know, elderly people were closed down. Of course, disability rights have been closed down. So, not a, and we've been reading in the media here, of course, that, that the government, Putin, has also closed down the free media. So, you know, complete control. It's, 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 well, I don't know whether we're fully into totalitarianism, but it's certainly authoritarianism sliding that way. 
And when you look at what Hitler did in the 1930s, you can see so many similarities. Another populist, of course. Yes. You can see so many similarities. Um, and this is the danger. We, I mean, in Australia, we, we haven't got anything like what's happening elsewhere, but it is happening. Erdogan could be sliding in that direction, for example, into Turkey. I mean, he's not at this stage, but you can see the slippery slope. Yeah, um, and, and you know, happening with populism. Well, and I think you know, the you in, even in Australia, yes, it's still a thriving civil society. An associational life is easy to do. But you see these red flags when you see the state yeah. trying to, um, you know, defund organisations doing advocacy work or, you know, like, like the, this is the threat against civil society uh, as an idea, as a thriving space. So I think that's why when you say we need to cultivate and defend institutions and organisations that enable civil society, I think you're offering us a, a really important way forward. And it means like when I think of community development, like we can, we support community media, we support, um, yeah. you know, non-government organisations in Australia, many of us are union members. These are all like parts of civil society. I think that's what I'm hearing you yeah. say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about the whole move privatisation. I'm actually at the moment writing something about the new phase of neoliberalism um, following COVID, that um, what's happening in Victoria is that um, it, there's particularly lucrative, well, there's money from the Victorian government for community health, sorry, but yeah, the community health centres and, and um, neighbourhood houses. And what's happening is that the, as, the, as they're being def, not fee funded entirely, but the funding is not as great, uh, you're seeing the private for-profit sector seeing that this is that it's a lucrative way of getting money. Community childcare centres in my, my LGA here, the, the local government is actually closing down community childcare centres. There's a big struggle going on, which we might be winning. But you, these are all little, as you say, red flags involving the, the closing down of civil society, neighbourhood houses and other can I, can I ask as they're taken over by the private sector. Well, can I ask, you a, can I ask you a question there? But one, one person who listened to the first podcast with you wrote on social media, can you ask Sue Kenny about the conflation or the co-op between right-wing populism and powerful economic interests. And, you know, like, you, you, you know, when you start to talk about privatisation, you kind of go, oh, yes, you know, there's, there are links here um, because, you know, there, there, there's money to be made as you close civil society down and it's replaced by private sector actors. There's money to be made. Uh, and my, yeah, I, you know, coming back to Russia, I, I fear that many ways Putin could be, could be secretly the, the richest man in the world. Um, you well, know. that's what they say. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Exactly. And, and um, Clive Palmer is, is one of the richest in Queensland. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, yeah. So yeah. 
I mean, are there, are there, are there linkages or this political culture, is it linked to the political economy that is kind of being enabled basically since the 1970s, 80s, the Reagan, you know, it, and and I, I well, that question of why is why are we in a historical moment of the proliferation of right wing populism? Is it linked to the last forty years of neoliberal economics and the inequalities that result from that? Is that kind of part of the the big journey here of understanding? Yeah, it's oh, we've got so much work and thinking to do about this. Um, I mean, we've always had populism. I mean, go back to ancient Greece. I mean, you've got the demagogues, people coming to power because yeah. they've got charisma. They, they, they go, you know, they're patriotic. They, um, they uh, validate their anxieties. They pre present themselves as the ordinary person and they get to power and then they use that. So we've got that right down through history. Um, and, we, of course, we had it in the 1930s with... Hitler, Mussolini, and then, well, Stalin to some extent, although he wasn't, he didn't fit, he just took, took some of the populist themes yeah. and used them. Um, but going back to your point about the, the, the link between um, money and populism, I mean, ironically, of course, as we know, Trump's saying he was draining the swamp and he was there for the ordinary person. And the ordinary, per a lot of the ordinary people in, in America agreed with him that he was there for the ordinary people. But, I mean, when you look at the wealth that he had, the irony that here he is and I'm with you, I'm the ordinary person, and of course he wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> in no way. There's nothing in him that actually you could say, well, this is, this is because it, this is how he relates to the ordinary person. Yeah. Um, a lot of the left-wing populists, you know, have been, been able to do that. They came up from nothing. Um, if you look at, well, if people say... Um, uh, who, uh, various people who've come up. I'm trying to. Mine's gone blank. Chavez, for example, in Venezuela. In Venezuela, um, yeah. So you can, you, know, you can see Jeremy Corbyn, for example. Um, but uh, sorry, we're getting on to yeah. Uh, so you have you have to then differentiate very clearly between right wing and left wing populism. Um, but I think. Uh, to don't, what extent, don't. I mean, I don't know to what extent there's a clear strategy there that lets the leaders and movements have said, well, let's 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 go, let's take the themes from populism and use them. Because the other thing about populism, it's not as if it's this political culture is dropped from above. It's already simmering away below, going back to your point, that there's so much um, anxiety around at the moment. There's got to be a fertile ground for populism to thrive on left oh. or right-wing populism. Well, so we, people we are pissed to, off. We need to finish up for today. I think that that last comment, people <laughs> are pissed off, you know, and, and yeah. you know, like historically we know the, the 40s, you know, after World War II to the 70s saw, you know, the reduction of inequalities, the increasing role of the state, and since the 80s, you know, the inequalities have increased as the state rolls back, which I think the privatisation of risk, the privatisation of security, 
creates a lot of anxieties. So I think we're on yeah. to what we're going to talk about in our third episode um, because we have to finish now. Um, that's our 20-plus <laughs> minutes, Sue. Um, I really okay. appreciate that you, you know, what your passion about what's happened in Russia and how painful that must have been or is to, to see and, and watch right now. Um, and I really, yeah, thank you. Thanks for your clear analysis. Um, I'm going to certainly sit with civil society, Russia, and now this question we've kind of got to at the end, the economics. So let's, let's think about our third conversation um, and you take care. Okay. Thanks, Peter. <laughs>